This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you around the world, all of you, for joining us and the continued conversations that keep expanding, at least me and according to the emails, you. Thank you. There's a lot you could be doing, but I do love that we have this community. I have a wonderful guest today who I've followed for years. He's written, I think, 20 plus books and he's a psychotherapist. He used to be a monk. He's got a beautiful new book, which is a novel, which usually he's not a nonfiction guy. It's called Travelers, which is a beautiful story. I really loved it. Very moving. It's an honor to finally welcome to the family, Mr. Donald Altman. Thanks for coming on. Well, hi, Paul. Well, it's great to be here with you, too. So thanks for inviting me. I was curious before we get into this, uh, for some reason, I was thinking about COVID because a couple of friends in the last three days have come down with it. And then I've been contemplating these last few years. I wondered, Don, how have you done over the last three years with the advent of COVID, the periods of isolation, all the not knowing? And now that many of us, all of us are trying to move forward, has it ruffled your feathers? Were you hit by it at all? How did you uh, adapt and evolve through this? Yeah, it kind of did ruffle my feathers in some ways. I mean, it, it really changed how I was able or not able to do live trainings anymore, which I really enjoyed meeting people and, and having that interchange of energy and sharing. And uh, so that was uh, shifted over to the web. And it's hard to connect in the same way. And that's why I think, you know, our face-to-face relationships are so important. And that was really ruptured, wasn't it, during COVID. So, uh, yeah, that that affected me. And I, I really did, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert anyway, I guess. So I, I could survive. But it even, but uh, it, it did affect my ability to go out and meet with friends. And that was that was a loss. I think many of us suffered many different kinds of losses during this time. It's interesting you talk about face-to-face because this last year, being with people in person, breaking bread, hugging, laughing, taking a hike around the lake together rather than alone, I realized deeply in myself how badly I missed it and how it had hardened me a little bit like I was getting too calcified is, and I'm a bit of an introvert if people wouldn't believe it too. I spent a lot of time alone, but I do love being with people too. And when that was eliminated, it was like uh, getting used to drinking a lot less water. And then once the water returned, I thought, wow, I was dehydrated. <laughs> oh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm uh, rehydrating now. And I took a trip to visit a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in some years and I, I feel the one thing that interestingly I thought that the COVID did was it got me connecting with people I hadn't seen through through Zoom and in ways that uh, I would, you know, started seeking out people just to make that connection because I was separated by space. But um, I was able to see them even on the screen and connect with them. So it it had kind of an interesting um paradoxical benefit it allowed me to uh you know reach out more so 
I think that was a good, and that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. You're, you're in this rehydration as we're, we're able to reach out again. It feels good. I was curious, we talk about your decision to enter the monastery and how that choice then altered the trajectory of your life moving forward? Well, it it dramatically, I mean, it, Paul, I can't say enough that how it changed my life, uh, not just the experience of going in, I think I was ripe, I was ready for it, and it was uh, really a kind of a spiritual initiation for me, no question about it. And I went in because I was going through a lot of struggles in my life, and some things were repeating, repetitive, um, you know, harmful patterns that we all have, and and so I thought that if I could just start to understand it, uh, you know, at a deeper level to see what was happening in both in my mind and and to look deeply into these patterns, that maybe I could begin to heal from that, and. Uh, so I met this monk because a friend said, hey, there's a monk I, I, I think you'd like to meet. And so I met this monk. His name was Uthi Lananda. He was from Burma, a well-known teaching monk, traveled around the U.S., came here back in the late 70s, actually. And he was in the Theravada, the old school of Buddhism. And uh, when I met him, you know, I'm from Chicago originally. So I, when I met him, the sense of compassion and availability he had was just palpable. And then I had never met anybody like that before. I wonder how many of us do meet people that are that transformed inwardly. And a little bit later, at a very difficult time in my life, I had an opportunity to uh, ordain with him as the the Sayadaw, or the abbot, the head of the monastery, because I wanted to learn from him. And uh, so that's a kind of a cautionary tale, maybe, Paul, if somebody says there's a monk I want you to meet, you might end up in a monastery. <laughs> but I, but uh, for me, it was life-changing because not just what I learned in there, and I was able to get a new understanding of uh, the roots of suffering in my own life, but when I left, my view of the people that I saw was changed and how I experienced things and... I started doing some spiritual workshops around food and eating, the spiritual side of eating. I had always been kind of a mindless eater, emotional eater. And people after the workshops would come up to me and they'd kind of whisper in my ear and tell me about some anorexia problem or some, you know, bulimia issue they had. And I didn't, I was just stymied. I had no idea about how do I work with these people. So I went back to school, back, went to grad school, became a psychotherapist. And, it, you know, I was lucky, too, because it was at a time when mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn and his work was now becoming to be accepted in the therapy, you know, clinical mental health field. And so the timing was just right for me because I really worried that what if I can't bring mindfulness in? It's something I just knew was very uh, healing. And so, yeah, I going in the monastery um, really indirectly or directly shifted my whole uh trajectory toward um healing toward uh, uh psychotherapy and spirituality and uh then all the work all the writing i did was in that field too so it i i could never never have predicted isn't it amazing how things happen to us 
and we we don't have a clue really about how this is going to change and open other doors for us and did all this grow out of the trauma you had growing up with such a violent father yeah yeah i i, I it was really did come i think from my childhood and or who knows what else i may have brought in with me from uh you know energetically from other uh lifetimes who knows but uh yeah, definitely the the trauma in childhood, and uh, it, it's it's really incredible how it those things uh, have such a, an impact on us, and we have to face them. You know, people say, "Where should I start my mindfulness practice?" And I always think, "Well, start at at your most difficult place. You know, what you're struggling with and where you're suffering. What better way is that than to start learning about yourself?" And trauma is epidemic, and we're just barely beginning to understand its effect on us. It literally changes your brain, your neural pathways. It can trigger you unconsciously like a time bomb in the most innocuous situations. I was with a sweet woman uh, not too long ago, and something triggered her, and she literally was like in the nine-year-old, shaking and tears and shut down. She found her way out of it, but... Uh, we started talking a little bit and it came from her childhood, but she didn't elaborate and it wasn't right for me to know anyway. I didn't want to press, but I said, that is actually there. What just happened. If you can wrap your mind around it, it's that was a loving thing because it lets you know, almost like there's something inside of you that's sabotaging, hurting you could cause disease that now that you're aware of it, you could alter it and deal with it. And that's up to you. There's where the free choice comes in. Well, that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I like that, that things that are response to things are really signals uh, coming to sh tell us, hey, something's out of balance here in your life, and you know, what can you do about it? And uh, so I think we're here to deal with that trauma. Everybody has some kind of trauma. If you're in a human body, if you have a, uh, a human mind, you're going to experience all kinds of change, all kinds of uh, loss of things that you may cherish or love. And how do we come to grips with that? You know, we may have been uh, hurt by something in the past. And so it's uh, it's a real journey. It's a fascinating journey that we're on. We don't know exactly why, how we got here. And the cosmos is a journey. I was reading even recently that uh, scientists, scientists have found these super giant um, galaxies that they that are th is throwing off all their conceptions of how they thought the universe began. <laughs> so it's uh, you know I I I think uh, when we experience some of the um, non ordinary realities that I think we're wired to experience, it's kind of a cosmic initiation for us. And that's one of the things I tried to do in Travelers was to uh, kind of uh, bring people into that initiatory cosmic world uh, where things are not what we think they are. Any uh, little light wisdom, uh, gentle wisdom for those listening who might want to start to unpack the trauma? That's a good question. I would say, number one, uh, give yourself a hug. Uh, you know, uh, you can actually physically just wrap your arms around yourself, take a nice breath, and with that breath in, say, may I be 
loved. May I be well. Right? That's part of the loving kindness practice. Well, put your hands over your heart. Let your heart, which is already soft because of this injury you've had, let it let it rest and uh, be healed. So you could even say, may I, may my heart be healed. May I recover. Just breathe that in. And then when you breathe out, extend that to all beings because we, we've all suffered, right? So you could breathe out then and say, may all beings be healed. May all beings be free from pain or whatever it is. So you can adapt the words to however they make sense for you. You know what you need. So you can just breathe that in with one breath, uh, hug yourself or hold your heart, and then exhale it out to all beings. You've written a lot on mindfulness. What does it mean to you? I always, I've heard so many definitions. There is no one definition, like what is God? What, what does it mean to you? But you've written a lot about it. Well, and you know what's funny, is Paul, my understanding of it has continued to shift the more that I've worked with it and taught it. And sometimes I hear people reciting some, you know, kind of standard definition of mindfulness. But I like to go back to the original, in a sense, the uh, the word sati, which is uh, Sanskrit. And the original meaning of that word, which is sometimes referred to as mindfulness, really meant self-recollection and self-remembrance. So it's kind of bringing the fragmented parts of ourselves together and finding our wholeness. Right. And that's just not our wholeness in this moment, but I think it's our wholeness looking back, you know, at our traumas, at the things that have shaped us and bringing it all in and letting it all be a part of our being and accepting it all. The beauty, the good, the the, the warts, the difficult things. Right. And uh, accepting it all somehow as a seeing it as a gift that we have that we're given in this precious life to learn from, to grow from. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I view it. I, I view it also as um, a lot of times mindfulness is thought of, oh, I'll be more productive and I can pay more attention to what's going on. But I think its real purpose is to reduce suffering so that we can look at, be more aware of the suffering or the roots of suffering in our own life. And if you want to really pull out a weed, you've got to get it from the roots. And so uh, mindfulness helps us start to recognize what those roots are. And if we suffer less, we cause less suffering to others. And, and so I think it it really helps us grow our compassion and grow an understanding of the suffering of others. And, you know, sometimes in when I was doing live workshops, I would tell a story about uh, a great story from Tolstoy called The Three Questions. Have you heard of that? Yeah. It's a great story about this king, and he wants to know these three questions. What's the best time to do anything? Who are the most important people? And what's the most important thing to do at all times? And what he uh, what he learns from that story is that the most important time is now and most important to help the other person who's right in front of you, because who knows when this time will, will come again. And then I would have the people in the workshop, I'd tell them that story and then have them sit across from one another uh, find a partner, somebody they ideally had never met before, and sit facing that person in silence for three minutes, just looking them eye to eye. And, of course, it was kind of frightening for a lot of people to do this at first. 
But I think the story kind of primed them, got them ready for that. And then it was amazing what would happen. I'd hear things that people would say it was like looking in a mirror. Or I saw, uh, I you know, I saw myself in their eyes. And if you see yourself in somebody else's eyes, how could you ever hurt them or, or harm them, right? Uh, so it was a very profound experience. Uh, uh, some people would laugh <laughs> and just find this lightness with, with, with another person, with another being. But it was a way of, uh, uh, ex you know, compassion means to be with sufferance. You're really with that other person in a very deep way. And uh, it's funny, I would always say, uh, I, I actually found a study where people who would look at each other for four minutes in silence uh, would often fall in love with each other. So I told them I, I limited it to three minutes because I didn't want the liability. <laughs> it's all one energy anyway. And when we see past the superficial differences, the trance and illusion of Maya, I think inherently our souls start to get a peek of the other soul, which shifts everything into an I-thou relationship where it's sacred instead of it seeing the other person as just another carbon collection that's either helpful neutral or in our way hmm well that's a nice way of saying it yeah how do we bridge that illusion of separateness uh there's a neuroscientist named um ramachandran is his name he says that if we didn't have our epidermal in the skin which is sending messages back to the brain that this is this is me this is where i end if we didn't have that, and he's done some interesting work around this, he he would say he says that we wouldn't know where we began, or where we ended, and the next person began. And there's um, he cites some evidence for this, but it's uh, fascinating. He's a neuroscientist. Donald, what made you decide to write a novel as a change of pace? Travelers is such a beautiful book. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. I tried to write this as a nonfiction to start with, <laughs> and it, I couldn't write it. And I'm not usually uh, blocked when I write my nonfiction work. I'm uh, been blessed with the ability to structure it, and I have a lot of stories I can tell, and and a lot of mindfulness information I can impart and all that. But this, for some reason, and I realized, uh, I, I even sent it to this one friend of mine another writer to see what he thought and every time i'd send him a draft he'd say i don't know it just doesn't doesn't work for me <laughs> and i was like so you know how can i crack this story and then i thought well it could be a novel and uh, i could share things in ways that i could never hope to describe them or move people in or inspire people and bring them into another world like I could other except by doing it as a novel and I have to tell you after the first 25 pages I was ready to quit <laughs> uh I yeah I um it was really uh big I wanted it to work organically and even though I understand uh plot points and I'd written uh some film in the past uh uh, you know, I, the story just had to come out of the characters. And so I I just decided to change, realize that this was not a nonfiction book. 
and it's going to have its own pace. And I had to allow the creativity to come from the source and allow it to flow. Uh, but I was still very disciplined. I mean, it's still sit down every day and work on it. But uh, I, it surprised me along the way in, in, in many ways. And I hope that it surprises the reader, the readers as well. But um, I just felt that I could bring people into a world and share um, the magic of what it means to be a conscious being and how we sometimes put ourselves in little boxes or put labels on ourselves and we limit ourselves. And I wanted to show people you can get, uh, you know, you can find wholeness, you can find wellness uh, in ways that you never might have imagined. I saw how it highlighted life as this ongoing process of love and loss. Well, loss is kind of at the key of the story. And I think you really nailed it there, Paul, because uh, it's about uh, uh, love, loss, relationship, and you know, how do we recover from loss? And the main character is grieving the loss of a daughter, which is something uh, I've, I haven't had that loss and so I, I uh, had to put myself in the shoes of that character and just see how devastating that would be. And so he can't find a way to heal from his own, from this deep loss. And he even blames himself for part of it because he's a psychiatrist and he figures he could have noticed some of the early symptoms that his daughter had. So he's, he, he's self-blaming and it drives a wedge between he and his wife. And, and yeah, everybody heals in a different way. That's the other point I wanted to let people see here is that uh, when there's a loss in a family, every family member will experience that loss differently. And, uh, but, you know, it takes time. There's no, uh, you know, there's no one that says, oh, you have to grieve in such and such a time. Although it's kind of interesting uh, in the mental health field now, there's something, uh, there's a new diagnosis called prolonged grief disorder. And yeah, yeah. And that diagnosis is that, what it means is that if somebody grieves for more than a year, uh, it's a disorder. And I think that's ludicrous. Uh, you know, I mean, who's to say you, you have to, <laughs> it's kind of this all or none thinking that we are kind of stuck with in our world nowadays and seeing things in one way and i mean who's to say that grief can't last a lifetime right um and it's kind of a uh you know it's kind of like a i've heard people you know this one uh grief expert say that it was like a love letter to the one you've lost and i thought that was a, a beautiful sentiment and you know so here uh you cherish that that person, and perhaps there are ways to connect with that person even after they're physically gone. So that's something that I explore in the book as well. And uh, it's you know it's a it's something that a lot of people who have lost loved ones actually experience that they experience the presence either through some sign or some symbols, different things that happen. And uh, even my own mother, she she died at 99. And I think of her as a spirit. She was kind of a spiritual guide for me. Um, she had an incredible uh, sweetness, Barbara Altman. 
an incredible sweetness and a and um an openness. I, I mean, I had never heard this woman say a bad word about anybody. <laughs> it's like pretty amazing to me. And uh and when she died, you know, I kept thinking, well, maybe I'll have a dream, maybe I'll get to connect with her in some way, and nothing happened. But then one morning, several months later, uh, as I was coming into consciousness, uh not fully asleep and not fully awake i sensed her in fact i saw her and it was it was a vivid but she was with me and she was doing this little dance like she used to do kind of uh this you know uh, she was she loved to move her body and dance and so she did this little move and smiled at me and and i she was with me and it was and it changed how I felt after that time. I was very grateful for that experience. And then when something would happen where I was like, I wonder what, what uh, my mother would say about this or that. And I would, I would just tune into the body and I'd ask her and I get an instantaneous response, not through words. And I think sometimes we're, we're, you know, we're a very mental culture and we can get stuck up in our heads. And I think we have this incredible um, physical tuning fork that carries us around and we can tune into that and get so much other information and subvert the discursive mind right which can play a lot of games on us and just get to uh that more uh primal experience in the body and uh and i've actually felt that it's her just sharing that um that response i get and it's instantaneous. I mean, I've only done it a couple of times, but when I have asked, I've received that. And I don't think that's uncommon for people who uh, who have lost loved ones, for them to experience that connection. But we are in the grip of a material world, right? I, I mean, there's, um, I think it's a, I call it the stranglehold of materialism, of a materialistic view of things that the physical part of us is all there is and uh that even consciousness according to um, some of these neuroscientists for example uh consciousness is simply an artifact of biological processes happening in the brain that were that everything is predetermined i mean it's a very i think a very harmful view that is uh causing people uh a lot of pain because because they're getting divorced from their spiritual nature getting divorced from uh realizing there's something beyond the material the cause of suffering because it's a lie it's not who we are and anybody that's dipped into this infinite invisible plane of what we really are and this is just a fraction it's actually reverse and it's that that's a mind-based construct from the ego pay no attention to the infinite consciousness behind the curtain this is all there is the gnp make money collect your coupons before you die oh and ignore any spiritual experiences you had here's your pharmaceuticals by the way when when you're talking about beings coming back I still have an ongoing relationship with my parents. They come all the time in what's like a dream state, but it's different than my dreams. And we meet there. They say that we're having an interdimensional rendezvous. We talk about it. 
I cry because I miss him here. We show up in our costumes so we could recognize each other. It's not what we really are. But it's it's like, oh, I knew you when you played the sheriff. All right, put that outfit on so I can recognize you. And, and then, and everything's mysterious and beautiful and connected. And if you live that way, the universe responds. But if you want to have the closed down academic mind-based thing, God bless you, literally. And the universe is fine to give you that. It's not going to impose. But if, if you're listening it's democratic. Anybody can just all can get into it. All you have to do is be open. And the more you find out your eternal nature, the less afraid you'll be of everything, including your own mortality. And then you're free to ramble and roam in these realms and have a cosmic dream experience while living fully in the earth, not bypassing it, not daydreaming and walking in front of a train. You're really here. And i I would encourage everybody. And by the way, I was the least likely candidate to say that when I was younger in my super ego based yet ironically so unhappy twenties that if I came back and told myself that now it, he would have a very hard time believing this is what happened. <laughs> well, and I, you know, and I think the fact that we're able to have these experiences, these uh, non-ordinary experiences, uh, I had, uh, experienced major depressive disorder in my early 20s. And that's when I started to actually experience uh, uh, out-of-body experiences, what I, and also, uh, I guess, visions where I, they, they seemed like, uh, like, uh, old, like uh, previous lifetimes, reincarnations. And for me, it didn't didn't get rid of the depression, but it gave me a sense that, hey, even though I'm mired in this oppressiveness in this moment, this is not all there is. It was like a release valve. It gave me uh, a bigger picture of things all of a sudden. So um, for me, it was, um, you know, it's almost like a cosmic initiation. And we can experience these initiations not be afraid of them. And I know people who've had some of these experiences and just completely shut them off because they were afraid they're going crazy or right. Or, uh, and it's funny, you know, I, uh, some years after I had these experiences and they've continued, um, I asked a, uh, um, a neurologist about what would you say if somebody had these symptoms and they said, Oh, they're having uh, epileptic seizures or, they need medication. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it is, but again, that's that materialistic viewpoint of things. And uh, so in Travelers, I'm trying to, you know, what, what you said about how that materialistic viewpoint is so uh, difficult and you can live in that, of course, but that's what happens to the psychiatrist in my story. He's very much uh, a, a rationalist, logical, like most many doctors are. And when he's confronted with these out of worldly, you know, things we would call miraculous or things that just don't make sense, he is very threatened. He thinks he's losing his mind, but he is eventually forced to confront the nature of these things and decides to go more deeply into it. And, uh, and it transforms his life, of course. So how, how do we 
allow ourselves to enter the world of the mystery. Yeah, there's uh interesting in, in, in French, everybody knows uh, deja vu, right? Um, so deja vu means uh, having been there before. And so that's what happens to us. We start to, the first time we see a rose as a child, it's this beautiful, incredible, luscious, uh, you know, object that we just feel like we want to know and we smell it and we look at it and we pick the petals. And then after a while, you know, we get uh, acclimated and we get habitual and so you're walking down the street, oh, there's just another rose, <laughs> right? Well, the French also have a term called jema vu, and that means never having been there before. So it, retaining that childlike ability to see that rose as if for the first time again. You know, I, 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 I knew a man who was a recovered addict. He uh, was actually a uh, a therapist too. He was helping working with addicts, but he'd been an addict. And he said that right after, not too long after he got sober, he was in New York City, he's walking along the street. And he suddenly, there was this smell, this enticing scent. And he was like, wow, what is that? He like never experienced this. And he went around the corner and he followed it and he came to this beautiful rose beautiful fragrant rose and he saw it as if for the first time and he said that he when he was in his addiction and addiction could be thought of as a lot of things it could just be thought of as being in our habitual um you know hardwired uh neural brain networks <laughs> right that are keep us stuck keep us in a rut but he said i that was what you know brought him back to realizing wow i'm back in the world again i'm out of my addiction and so he would tell that story a lot to people and i think it's just a beautiful story but how can we awaken to what is around us and i think you mentioned that so many miracles right how can we just start to see these in in everything and open our minds up and then i like what you said about how then the universe will act in that manner it gives you what you want in a way <laughs> right and uh but i love that story that he shared about about the rose and i once had a lady in a workshop it wasn't actually it wasn't a workshop it was at portland uh no it was a lewis and clark graduate school of education and counseling where i used to teach there and so i was teaching a class and we did some mindfulness in the class and so i had everybody go outside there was a beautiful grassy field behind the grad school and I said, I want you to really just be present with nature. And so I went out there for about, you know, then I told them to do this for like 20 minutes. And then I went outside just to watch them. And I noticed one woman was on all fours, moving very slowly, like on the grass. And I, it just, I don't, and I wonder, well, what's she doing? What's she looking at? And she was there the whole 20 minutes, just moving very slowly. But anyway, we came back in. I chimed a little bell and we came back in. And I asked for some experiences and her hands shot up. And I said, well, I noticed you on the, the grass there. What, uh, what was what was happening for you? And she said, well, I, I saw a worm. And she said, this worm was the most mesmerizing thing. She said, I just, I lost all sense of myself. And, and I could just 
I was like one with the worm. And I was just following it. I wasn't going to wriggle to the right, wriggle to the left. Said it was it was beautiful. And how can we lose the ego, right? How can we lose that sense of self, which we defend? And you think about why why is there so much dissension in the world? And well, we're all defending, defending something. And uh, often it's our sense of self or what we believe is necessary. And uh, how can we let go of some of that and let it dissolve? like that woman did in that moment. But that was a beautiful um, expression of jema vu, right? Never having been there before. So I would, you know, I think that's a great place for people to start too, just to get curious and to bring that childhood expression of wonder back into your life today. Beautiful, beautiful story. I know I have to let you go, but I was curious. You had a profound experience with Jesus, did you not? Yeah, I did. I did actually share a little bit of an experience about with 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 jesus in the book uh and the energy that i experienced around the name of what uh jesus represents i also uh experienced the same thing around the buddha it's interesting i think it, it, what it means to me is that we everything makes an impression if you're walking on a sandy beach, you look back and your feet make an impression on the sand. And everything we do, every action, every thought uh, leaves an impression that goes beyond just, I believe, beyond this material realm and into the conscious universe. And uh, and so the energy uh, and the good uh, positive connections made by Jesus or the Buddha um i think uh is still here with us so it's a it's actually uh not something that happened in the past and we can tap into it right here and now donald how do you feel about your own impermanence i i know it's impermanent and i know it's it's transitory which means it will transform into something else uh yeah so impermanence also to me means uh it's this transitory state and that we're all uh, changing, right? And trying to hold on, trying to grasp on to what I was <laughs> is fruitless. And I'm not saying it's easy, by the way. But uh, yeah, facing mortality for anybody is a challenge, I think. And uh, But I think uh, what we can do is recognize that, again, this, is, this material world is not all we are. We came into being from some mystery we're going to go back to the mystery and hopefully we can bring some consciousness along with it and uh some awareness even to that transition so uh, great question you've been listening to the what matters most podcast a 100 percent listener supported program if you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light. <laughs>